Uh, there was a man, he lives in New York City, um, and he didn't have an address per se. He was one of the people who lives in New York City without an address. That means that he sleeps in the park, he sleeps on a bench, he sleeps in a shelter when there's room for one. Um, and he's getting up in years, and he's starting to break down. His eyesight is not what it used to be. He can't hear very well. He walks with a cane and stooped over from literally decades of sleeping on cold sidewalks. And all of that life has begun to take its toll on him, but his mind is as sharp as ever. And other than his mind being sharp, that was about it. Body's broken down, his finances are ruined, he doesn't have anything to speak of. And it wasn't always like that for him, because he grew up in Boston, and growing up in Boston, he had the privilege of growing up in one of the leading and wealthiest families in that whole area. Uh, he went to the best schools, even went to Harvard. He went to grad school and got his MBA. Um, he went to work in his dad's company, where he got a corner office, and he was... Uh, on the fast track to become the CEO when his father retired. He had the nice car. He had the beautiful women. He had all of the opportunities that that kind of lifestyle affords. He lived in a big house, and he had everything going the way he wanted it to go. But then one day, one of his friends and he were out together, and his friend got into a fight. And when his friend got into a fight, he got involved, and he was really just trying to break it up. But one thing led to another, and before it was all over, the guy who had been fighting with his friend was on the ground and he died. He was arrested for murder and he was booked and put into jail, but his father with his influence and his money was able to bail him out and get him out on bail. And while he was out on bail, he came to realize, listen, this is not going to work out well for me and I cannot go back to jail. And he, he jumped bail and he took off and he didn't tell anybody where he was going and he moved to New York. And he lived in New York under a different name, and he started a different life, and he was never able to get a job because he didn't have the right paperwork and the Social Security card and all that kind of stuff. And he ended up just on the street like that. And he spent four decades there, out living, out of doors. And as I said, his mind was sharp. And as I said at the beginning, too, this is a true story. The name's different, some of the details are different, but the story itself is true. As this man one day was just standing on the corner thinking about his life, uh, he suddenly began to hear a voice in his head. That didn't make him the first homeless person in New York to hear a voice in his head, right? But this was a different kind of voice. It wasn't really feel like it was coming from his head. He, he thought he was actually hearing the voice, and he moved toward the voice, and the voice was just calling his name, Jerry, Jerry. And he moved toward the voice, and as he came toward the voice, he saw there was a trash can there, and the trash can was uh, aflame, and it seemed like the voice was coming from the trash can. And so he drew close to the trash can, and it just kept calling his name, and he looked in and he realized the trash can was still full of trash, and the trash wasn't burning up, and he was hearing the voice of God. Now, if you've been here uh, for the last couple of months as we've been going through the story of the book of Exodus, you know by now that... This true story didn't really take place in Boston, New York. It took place in Israel and Midian and Egypt. And you know that this person who heard the voice of the Lord calling, didn't hear it from a trash can, he heard it from a burning bush. And his name was Moses. 
Because at 40 years old, Moses was living in Egypt. He was the grandson of the Pharaoh. He had everything going for him. He had the best education, the best opportunities, all that money could buy. He was absolutely prepared to be a great world leader when suddenly he got involved in a fight and the guy that he fought with ended up dead because he was trying to protect somebody else. And when he realized that the word was out and people knew what had happened, he took off and he moved away to a faraway land and he never came back again. And he was 40 years old when that happened. And he spent 40 years living in the wilderness, sleeping outside as a shepherd before he finally heard that voice of God calling his name. And he went and he saw the bush burning and he heard the voice of God and essentially God said to him, Moses, I have a plan for your life and you thought your life was over and you thought there was nothing more for you to do because now you're 80, but I'm telling you that my plan for your life is really just beginning and it's going to be amazing. If you'll just come with me, I'm going to show you how I'm going to change the world through you. And we hear that story and we know that story and we say, well, that's an amazing story, right? God calls this guy Moses. There's no other story in all of history that I know of where the voice of God speaks from a burning bush and calls a person to such a world-changing calling, right? It's a unique story, isn't it? Or maybe it isn't. Because the more you think about it, as you read the Scripture, you will find that again and again and again in Scripture, although the places and the names and the details change slightly, the story gets told over and over and over again of this God who calls out to us and says to us, listen, I have a plan for your life, but you're going to have to come with me if you're going to experience that plan. And God calls people over and over and over again. All the way back in the book of Genesis, he called Joseph that way. It wasn't from a burning bush, it was in a dream. And God gave Joseph multiple dreams and basically said to him, I have a plan for your life and you're going to have to come with me to experience that plan. And as that plan unfolds in the book of Genesis, it results in this situation where Moses is needed because the people have now been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Or maybe the story of Samuel will ring a bell for you. Samuel, who has been given by his parents to God, as one who's been consecrated to serve in the worship. And he's there sleeping on the ground, and as he's sleeping, he hears his voice uh, calling his name, Samuel, Samuel. And he gets up and he runs into the room where the high priest is, and he says, did you call? And he says, I didn't call you. And he goes back down and goes to sleep, and then he hears again, Samuel, Samuel. And he gets up and goes to the room, and the high priest says, I didn't call you. And he goes back a third time and he lays down and he hears the voice, Samuel, Samuel. And finally, understanding what's going on, he says, here I am, Lord, speak. And God speaks to him and he essentially says, Samuel, I have this plan for your life. I want you to be involved in coming with me. Come with me. Or there's the story of David where this prophet Samuel, now a grown man and the, the spokesman for God, goes all the way out to David's house and instead of hearing the voice of God from a burning bush, instead of hearing the voice of God calling his name in an audible way, he hears the voice of God through the voice of a prophet. As a prophet comes to him and says, God has told me that he has this great plan for your life and he's going to make you king. Or there's the story of Isaiah who just in his time of worship has this vision where God just opens up the sky and he sees God in all of his glory and the angels surrounding him and singing praises. And Isaiah is cut to the quick and he falls on his face and he says, here I am, Lord, send me. And God says, I have this plan for your life. Come with me. 
Or maybe you think of Zacharias in the New Testament, the one who was the father of John the Baptist, who was the high priest. He went into the temple for his worship. And while he was in the temple worshiping God, God interrupted his worship. And God began to speak to him as he was worshiping and said, listen, Zacharias, I have this huge plan for your life. And Zacharias was so blown away and so surprised that he would hear the voice of God in that way that he doubted that it was even God. And he thought I was on candid camera or something. And God had to say, listen, I'm going to show you. And he made Zacharias mute until the time when John the Baptist was born. And he heard his voice in that way. Or maybe there's the Samaritan woman at the well that rings a bell for you. She just comes out in the middle of the day. She's a, she's a broken woman. She a, uh, has a ruined reputation. And so she doesn't come out in the early morning to get water from the well because all the other women from the town will be there and she just can't deal with all the gossip and all the dirty looks and all the name calling just one more time. So she waits until the middle of the day when it's hot and no one is at the well and she goes to the well and when she gets there, she sees this man, a stranger, and not from around there. And he encounters her and begins to speak to her. And as she hears his voice, she doesn't know it yet, but she's hearing the voice of God. And God is speaking to her, meeting her where she's at. Or how about Zacchaeus? He climbs a tree because he wants to get a glimpse of Jesus. And Jesus stops, looks up in the tree, says, Zacchaeus, I want you to come down from there. And I am going to have dinner with you tonight. And he changes his life. And he hears the voice of God from up in a tree when the voice of God speaks to him from down on the ground. Or maybe we could think of Lazarus, who is already dead. The funeral has happened and he's in the tomb. And Jesus comes along. And from the point of death, from inside the tomb, the mummified Lazarus hears the voice of God calling and saying, Lazarus, come forth. And he comes forth out of death into life because he heard the voice of God calling him. Now, I could keep going, but have you noticed the pattern yet? God does this. It is not unique that God speaks to people. It is not unusual that God calls people. In fact, this is what he does. God is constantly calling us over and over and over again we see it in the Bible, God calls people, and when he calls them, he often says something like this, come to me. He begins with a call to come to him, and he invites you into a relationship with him that leads to another calling, or maybe it's one calling in the same where he says, come with me. And so on the one hand, we have the call to come to him. On the other hand, the call to come with him, and those two calls together are an invitation into a relationship with God himself. And we see him calling like that. Today, he still speaks. Now, if, if somebody has told you or if you have somehow gotten the idea that God finished speaking a couple thousand years ago and he never speaks to anybody anymore, you have gotten some wrong information because God is still speaking today. And if you are a Christian and the Holy Spirit resides within your heart, the Spirit speaks to you directly and personally and guides you through his word. And so as we open the Word of God, we have the actual living and active Word of God and the Spirit of God helping us to understand the Word of God so that God is actually speaking to us, calling us, and directing us. And some people heed the call, and some people have just gotten into the habit of ignoring the call. But make no mistake about it, how you respond to the calls of God is the most important thing about you. 
Let me say that again. The way that you respond when God calls is the most important thing about you. There's nothing in your life that is more important than that. How you respond when God calls, and it's not a question of if He calls, it's a question of when He calls and how He calls. And as you read the Gospels, you're going to notice something about this calling that is really interesting because when you go through and you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you just sort of take the story in and you just see it unfolding and you see what's happening, one of the things you will notice right from the beginning is that Jesus is constantly attracting people to Himself. People are drawn to Him. They just come out of the woodwork when He comes around. And there's always a crowd around. They always want to be where He is. And once He became well-known and famous for His teaching and His miracle working and all of that, you could understand why He would draw a crowd, right? You would say, well, they come because He multiplies their food. He, they come because he, he heals their diseases, right? He come, they come because he's this amazing teacher. But it's what's interesting about Jesus and who he is as a person is that he's attractive to people even before that. Even before anybody gets word of the fact that he has uh, miraculous power. Even before he's preached the Sermon on the Mount and people are buzzing about this new teaching that is coming from God's Word. Even before he has a reputation for having walked on water and calmed the storm. Even before that, people still want to be around him. In fact, in John's Gospel, he opens chapter 1 in the Gospel of John by telling us theologically who Jesus is. And then once he's laid that groundwork, he begins telling us the story of Jesus' ministry, and he begins in a place that none of the other gospel writers go. He starts by telling us, well, let me just read it to you. Go to John chapter 1. Gospel of John, third book of the New Testament, John chapter 1. And we're going to pick it up because we're going to see the way that Jesus is attracting people to himself, which is very interesting and unique in and of itself. And then we're going to see where that leads. So let's begin in John chapter 1 and verse 35. It says, again, the next day, John, meaning John the Baptist, was standing with two of his, of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak the, uh, and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated as Peter. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. And Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of, Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. 
And let's just stop there because I want you to notice what's happening. There's this sort of snowball effect going on, right? Jesus is walking, and of course, John the Baptist, being the prophet who was the forerunner of Jesus, knows who Jesus is, and he knows he's the Messiah, and he has already said that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so when John sees Jesus come again, he's standing there with two of his own disciples, and he sees Jesus and he says, behold, the Lamb of God. And immediately those guys taught well by their leader realized that they weren't supposed to follow just a prophet. They're supposed to follow the Messiah. And so when they saw the Messiah, they went to him. One of those guys was Andrew. It doesn't tell us who the other guy was, but one of them was Andrew and there were two of them. And then Andrew goes and gets his brother Simon, who is also named Peter, and he calls Simon Peter to come and Simon comes. And then... Um, after that, you find Philip, and when he sees Philip, he just calls him and says, follow me, and Philip follows him. And immediately, the next thing it tells us about Philip is that Philip, once he knew that he had found the Messiah, immediately went and found his friend Nathaniel and said, we found the Messiah, the one who is the Christ. And Nathaniel said, but that's impossible. He comes out of Nazareth. And he said, just come and see. And so again and again and again, you have this, this um, calling, come and see, come and see, come and see. That, that there's, there's a story to be told about this Messiah that we've been waiting for, that, the, that God is going to send his own son and he is going to, to rescue us and save us from our sin. And so they're waiting for this Messiah. And when they hear word that this could be him, listen, this is not the first time anybody said the Messiah had come. In fact, the scripture goes on to tell us that there have been multiple men in that very decade who had claimed to be the Messiah and caused a stir and gotten a following and had to be dealt with by the Roman authorities. And so they had heard before that there was a Messiah. And so they're questioning and saying, is this really him? How can we know this is him? And the guys who already knew him, the only answer they could give was, come and see. When I came, I knew. So you need to come too, and you'll see. And when they came, they saw. And this is a two-day process of these five guys coming to become followers of Jesus. And if you weren't reading this in the context, you might not know that this is the very beginning of his ministry. We're not told that he's called any other followers at this point. At this point, there are five people. There's Andrew and the other nameless disciple of John. And there is Philip, and there is Peter, and there is Nathaniel. There are five of them. And they are following Jesus. And what's interesting to me is that of these five followers, um, they're with him. And when you get to John chapter 2, they continue to be with him. And when you turn the corner on John chapter 2, you have to remember the context because we've just seen in John chapter 1, they said on the first day, he saw Andrew and then Andrew called Peter. And then on the second day, uh, Philip and Nathaniel came. There have been two days now since Jesus began this process of calling people. And then chapter 2 begins with, on the third day. So on the third day, this is a three-day story. On the third day, something different happened. Look what happens on the third day, chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, you know that this is the story of the wedding in Cana where Jesus does his first public miracle. And what was that? He turns water into wine, right? And so Jesus is going to be turning water into wine at this wedding. And, 
and we know the story unfolds, and, and we get caught up in the story of the wedding, and we see how Jesus shows his greatness. He turns water into wine. What an amazing miracle. And his followers are that much more convinced now that he must be the Messiah, and he solidifies his trustworthiness in their heart, and that's kind of what this story is about. But it's interesting as we look at the story, because as I was reading it this time, I just got stopped on verse 2, and I couldn't seem to get past it. Let's look at verse 2 again. It says, And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now, you may be thinking, really, that's the verse you couldn't get past? I mean, that's, that's just a so what verse. Jesus was invited to a wedding. Big deal. Well, I think it is a big deal, and here's what I want to tell you. See, apparently, the first thing Jesus did after his temptation in the wilderness, after his baptism... The very first thing Jesus did to launch his ministry was went to a party. Now, I want, I want you to have a minute to think about that. Of all the things that he could have done, right? He knows his plan. He's come to rescue the world from their sin. He's going to preach the gospel to many, many people. He's going to cast out demons, heal the sick, and even raise the dead. He has a full agenda, right? Right? He knows that he has three years before the crucifixion, and this is the beginning of his public ministry. So what is he going to do first? How is he going to hit the ground running? The first thing he does is takes time out and goes to a party. And I think it's fascinating not only that he went to the party, but that he was invited to the party. And if you don't know this, you should know. If you've ever been, and I'm sure most of us have, to a wedding here in our culture, we know that a wedding is a big party, right? It's, it's not like other parties. It's a big deal. And there's a lot of work that goes into it, and it's a very specific kind of a party, and there's music and dancing and food and feasting, and all of that stuff happens at a wedding. And if that's what you have in mind when you're thinking of going to a wedding party, when you look at John chapter 2, you've got it all wrong. Because in the first century in Israel, when they had a wedding party, when they had a wedding, it was not a six-hour affair. It wasn't a six-day affair. It was often a six-week affair. When you went, you stayed with these people, and they were responsible for feeding you, housing you, and entertaining you for the whole time. It was a humongous deal. Jesus has been invited to this wedding. And he was invited to a giant party, and we know what kind of party it was, not just because it was a wedding, but because we're told that while the people were there, they are drinking so much that even though they have set aside all of this wine for weeks of partying, that at some point in the party, they run out of wine. So this is the kind of party where they serve alcohol. And Jesus went to it. This is the kind of party where they have a live band. Now, I know they have a live band, not because the scripture tells me they have a live band, but because this predates Spotify. And I know that they weren't pumping it in over the sound system, right? So the, there, was a, there was alcohol, there was a live band, there was no doubt dancing as there was at every Jewish event that you will ever go to, right? And so this is what's happening, this long, drawn-out experience, and it's that kind of party. And what is Jesus doing there? Why did he go? The scripture tells us he went because he was invited and not only was he invited, but they allowed him to bring five friends. Now, I don't know if you've ever done this, if you've ever planned a wedding. Most of us probably have. 
been involved in planning a wedding. When my eldest daughter got married, it was a big deal. We were planning a wedding, man, and we had weeks and months to plan a wedding, and that's what we did, and that's what was going on in our house, and that was the whole deal, right? And it was all exciting to plan this wedding. But I'll tell you, the worst thing about planning a wedding, and many of you already know this, it's the guest list. The most stressful thing that has ever happened in my life is to cut down the guest list for my daughter's wedding party because you just don't have enough room or enough money for everyone to come, right? And so you say, okay, that we're going to have 300 or 100 or 50 or whatever your number is. And then you look at your list and it's three times that, right? And, and the parents on both sides have the people that just absolutely have to come even though the kids really don't even know them. And, and then the, the husband has this whole group of people that he hasn't seen in years, but they have to come. And the wife, the, the whole party's for the wife, right? So she's really in charge and she gets to decide who's really going to come. And you sit and you have these arguments and you cross people out and then you erase the cross out and you, you shift and you bargain and you make deals and you say, well, listen, if you'll let Aunt Martha come, then I'll let your, your rock and roll friend who smokes dope come. And we'll work it all out that way, Right. And, and it's totally stressful. And I remember, like it was yesterday, cutting down the list. It was brutal to the point where I sent, Christy and I sent a letter to a whole bunch of people explaining to them why we didn't invite them to the wedding. And, and it basically said, we're not inviting you to the wedding because we don't like you enough to invite you to the wedding. That's what we basically said. No, we didn't. We chose our words very carefully. So what, what does that have to do with this? This interests me. Because it has now only been two days since Jesus met the first of these men. And he's invited to this wedding. And so the day before the wedding, Jesus calls them and says, Hey, do you mind if I bring five more guys? What would you do if somebody said that the day before your wedding? No way, right? Jesus was not only invited to the wedding, but he was invited to bring five friends. What does that tell me? Well, I'm sort of guessing here, but it looks to me like they wanted Jesus at the wedding. Like it was a big deal to have him there. Why would you invite a guy like Jesus? This is before his miracles, before his sermons, before he was famous. Why would you invite a guy like Jesus and let him bring five people you don't even know to your wedding? Not because he's a celebrity. I guess he was invited because they liked him. And because a party was always better when Jesus was there. And if you don't believe that, all you got to do is keep reading the Gospels and you're going to find out this is not the last party he gets invited to. He is constantly being invited to parties. And so he was invited because they liked him. And is that a big deal? As you read the Gospel, is that a big deal? I actually think it is. I think it's a huge deal and I think there's an important lesson for us in it today. People wanted to be with Jesus, and he wanted to be with them. Apparently, they were not afraid that he was going to spoil the party. Apparently, they were not afraid that he was going to be a wet blanket, that he was going to be sitting in the corner all judgmental and marking down the names of the people who were drinking or the people who were dancing, right? And apparently, they wanted him there because they thought it would be good to have him there. And when they ran out of wine... He showed himself true to form and made the party better because he took water and turned it into wine. Now, I don't know how comfortable you are hearing about this. I don't know if it makes you feel awkward to hear that Jesus went to a party like this where they served real alcohol, 
and it was real alcohol, and they had live music and probably dancing. I assume they had dancing because John the Baptist was not there and he was the only Baptist at the time, so they probably danced. That's what I'm thinking. He goes to this party, and when they run out of wine, instead of saying, thank goodness, now maybe people will stop partying, he goes, don't worry, I'll make more wine. And he makes the good stuff. So that when it goes to the head waiter, he tastes it, and he says, I have never had wine this good in my life. Why did you hide this wine until the end? It's an interesting story. Apparently, they were glad he was there. Jesus made the party more fun. I just want you to think about that for a second because all of us have probably been to parties where Jesus was not welcome, right? Where if Jesus had been there, it would have been awkward. It would have been uncomfortable. But Jesus made this party better. People wanted to be with Jesus, and Jesus wanted to be with them. Although he was almighty, he didn't come across as high and mighty. And there's a huge difference. He was actually fun to be with. He had a sense of humor. He, he loved music. He still loves music. That's why we sing to him. He loves dancing. His scripture commands us multiple places to dance and sing and shout and play songs on loud instruments to him. So, you know, if... if if you, like me, are getting old and you're thinking, boy, that music's kind of loud, I just want you to know it's biblical. That's what God has really called us to. Jesus loves celebration. And we see it in his life over and over again. And I know this picture of Jesus makes people uncomfortable. And I, and I, I realize that some of you may be sitting here thinking, okay, we're making way too big a deal about this. Jesus goes to one party and all of a sudden we're saying he's a party animal. But I'm telling you, we have footage have you seen this picture? Jesus loved to party. And the way we know in all seriousness is because as you read the Gospels, it tells us again and again and again and again and again and again that Jesus was at parties. We probably see him at parties more than we see him anywhere else. It's unbelievable how often Jesus is looking for an opportunity to get together with people and how often they want to get together with him. And so if you're thinking that Jesus was not the party type, you would be wrong. Jesus was a partier. In fact, he had a reputation for being a partier. In fact, the, the religious elite were all bent out of shape because he was such a partier. They felt like he ate too much. They felt like he drank too much. And they felt like he partied too much, and they came out and said so. They felt like he hung out with the wrong people, and by their standards, he did. Remember I said when he met Zacchaeus? He calls him out of the tree and says to him, I want to go to your house, and I want to have dinner with you. So what does Zacchaeus do? The scripture tells us he goes and calls all of his friends, the other tax collectors, and they all gather at the house, and they have a party. It's the tax collectors and Jesus party. And they all gather together, and they party. 
And then when he goes past the tax booth and he calls Levi, remember Levi who becomes Matthew? We talked about that last week. He goes by there and he says, hey, follow me. Levi leaves his job as a tax collector and follows Jesus. And what's the first thing he does, same day as the day that Levi was called, it, scripture tells us they threw a party, invited all the tax collectors and the other sinners, and Jesus went to a party at Levi's house. Now, if you've seen like the, the movie The Great Gatsby, when he has that incredible house and everybody in New York comes to those parties, that would be like Levi's house. Levi is rich beyond any of their wealth. And he throws a huge party in his house and invites everybody and they party at Levi's house. Jesus' critics had a lot to criticize him for. They complained about his doctrine. They said he was blasphemous. They didn't like his tactics. They questioned his teaching. They didn't like his mission. But they never claimed that he was unapproachable. Never do you see any of, of Jesus' harshest critics saying, you know, he's just a jerk. This is hard to be around. I just don't like this guy. Jesus, although he was speaking things that they didn't like, they called him a blasphemer, but they never called him unfriendly. In fact, one of their biggest criticisms was that Jesus is a friend of sinners. That whenever you found Jesus, you found a bunch of punks with him. And he said, what is he hanging out with these people for? Why would a guy like him hang out with people like that? Jesus' faith, Jesus' religious convictions made him more likable, not less likable. I think there are a lot of people who claim to be followers of Jesus today who need to think about that. When people met Jesus, they not only wanted to be with him, but they wanted to bring their friends to him. In fact, we see it again and again. Remember, Andrew brought Peter, and Philip brought Nathaniel. The Samaritan woman, remember we talked about her? She heard his voice at the well, and when she realized that he was a Christ, let's look at her story. Go to John chapter 4. If you're in John 2, just turn the page. Go to John chapter 4. We're going to pick it up in verse 25. Remember, he meets this woman by the well. He knows that she's leading a sinful life. He calls her out on her sin, but he does it in a very respectful way, and he offers to give her forgiveness and grace, and he tells her that he's the Messiah. Look at verse 25 of John 4. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he'd been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out, to the city, went out of the city and were coming to him. So as soon as she's introduced to Jesus, as soon as she has a glimpse that he might be the Christ, the first thing she does, this woman of a terrible reputation, this woman who goes to great lengths to not be around people because it's so difficult for her to be judged, the first thing that she does is she runs off into the town where she finds a large crowd, by the way, of men, and she says to this group of men, listen, I'm not sure if I'm right about this, but I think I found the Messiah. And what does she say? The same thing that the others said, come and see. And they all came, and it says that Jesus stayed with them and shared himself with them, even though they were Samaritans. 
All she wanted to do was bring her friends to them, even her enemies. And, and how about this? In Mark chapter 2, I think it is. Is it Mark 2? Yeah, go to Mark 2. Gospel of Mark, two books back to the left. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. This is right around the same time. Jesus is just beginning his public ministry. And in Mark chapter 2, verse 1, it said, When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterwards, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. I love this story. But I don't love this story just because Jesus is healing the sick, which he is. And I don't love it just because he's casting out demons, which he is. And I don't love it just because he is teaching them as one having authority in a way they've never heard it before, which he is. I love it because the crowd is so dense of the people who want to be where Jesus is that the people who come with their friend who is on a stretcher can't even get near the house. They can't possibly get in the front door. I love the fact that these four guys had heard that the Messiah was there and what they did with their friend who they loved, apparently, was they went to him, they put him on a stretcher because he couldn't walk, and they carried him whatever the distance was till they could get to this home in Capernaum where they could bring him to Jesus and maybe he could get touched and healed. And when they got there, how disappointing it must have been to see that the crowd was so large there was no chance of them getting in. And so instead of just leaving him there and going home and saying, I've done enough, they went around the back of the house, found a passageway, climbed up onto the roof, handed him up onto the roof, took an axe. This is not their house. <laughs> took an axe and began to break open the roof, dug a hole. You can picture Jesus sitting down in the living room, talking with people and praying for people, and all of a sudden stuff begins falling on his head. And he looks up, and here are these guys digging a hole big enough in the roof that they could lower their friend down through the roof and basically dropped him in Jesus' lap so that he could meet the only one who had the power to forgive sins and heal his life. That's how attractive our God is. That they not only wanted to be with him themselves, but that they brought their friend no matter what the cost. Zacchaeus brought his sinful friends Levi brought his sinful friends because here's the thing, when Jesus calls and you come to him, you just can't keep him to yourself. When you really experience the touch of Jesus in your life, you just can't keep it to yourself because he's that good. And you begin to look and say, who do I know that needs to know him? And if you don't find yourself ever saying that, I just want you to know that maybe you just haven't gotten close enough to Jesus yet to where you understand just how incredible he is. Maybe you don't understand just how amazing it is that he would look at someone like you or me and reach out to us and touch our lives and give us new life. It's an unbelievable thing, and we need to be sharing it with people. One of the worst things I think that can happen to a Christian after they get saved is that we become too civilized. 
We just get to the point, don't we? A lot of us as Christians, you've been with Jesus a while, you sort of caught the church thing, you know how all that goes, and you begin separating yourself from certain people, and you begin to sort of put a wall around you, and you speak a Christianese language that nobody can understand. You begin to make people uncomfortable with the things that you're saying and doing, and you just start to judge people, and they feel judged, and so they separate themselves from you, and you think, well, thank God they're gone because I wouldn't want them to rub off on me. Guys, that happens to us too easily as Christians. We put up walls because we want those people to stay out there where they won't rub off on us. And if we're thinking that way, we've absolutely missed the point of Jesus where he said, listen, I've saved you that you might go out among them and you might rub off on them. That's the point. This God that we serve, so great, so wonderful, so powerful, so life-changing, we need to get out with people and let them know about it. Listen, God calls us to come out and be separate, but He doesn't call us to be jerks, and He doesn't call us to be weirdos, and He doesn't call us to be unapproachable, and He doesn't call us to be unfriendly, and He doesn't call us to be judgmental, and He doesn't call us to be all those things that we get accused of being. He calls us to love people, even those people whoever those people are, especially those people. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul addresses this. Take your Bibles, go to 1 Corinthians 5. Right after Romans, you'll come to 1 Corinthians. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, this is 1 Corinthians, but it is not the first time Paul wrote to the Corinthians. It's actually at least the second time that we know of we don't have his first letter, but the way we know this is because in, his first, in this letter, which is called 1 Corinthians, he mentions an earlier letter, okay? And he mentions that here. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Paul says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. And there you have it. Put the walls up, keep away from the immoral people. It says right here in 1 Corinthians 5, 9. Unless you keep reading which I always encourage. Verse 10, when I said that, when I wrote that to you in my letter, he says, verse 10, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with covetous or swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. He says, I'm not telling you to stop associating with sinful people in the world. You'd have to live in a cave. There's no way to disassociate with those people. In fact, you should be associating with them. And he says, verse 11, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a viler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So the reputation that some of us have as Christians and the reputation that Christians in general often have in this world is that we allow all kinds of hypocrisy within our midst, but we stand on our ivory tower waving our finger at people who are not followers of Christ and judging them for the way that they live. I've said this a thousand times. This will be a thousand and one. Listen, if you don't know Jesus, you're going to live like someone who doesn't know Jesus. What choice do you have? And so how can we possibly stand back judging those who are outside when actually we're called to love those who are outside? He says, if you're going to judge anyone, and he tells us to judge here, which is interesting, but who does he tell us to judge? 
ourselves. He says you have to love one another enough that when you see a brother or a sister who's caught up in some sin, that you come and put an arm around them and you say, listen, I see this going on in your life and I want to help you with this because this is not good for you. This is not healthy. I want to support you in this. Come on, let's repent and turn from this sin. He says we should be saying that to one another instead of standing up and wagging our fingers at those people out there, those people. See, we've gotten it backwards. And you know what? If the world is complaining at us for this, it's because they have a reason to. And so you may not fit into that category. If not, God bless you. But enough people who wear the label Christian do fit into that category that the world paints us all, or many of us, with that brush. See, Jesus came to the world and he said these words, I am the light of the world. Remember that? And then later in his ministry, he said to his followers, that he was not going to be here forever and he was going to leave. And what did he say to his followers? You are the light of the world. So we have taken the role of being that missionary that Jesus came to be. Our job is to be out there sharing this amazingly attractive God with people who desperately need him. It's okay. Listen, I'm going to do something right now and, and hopefully you'll remember this date. Here's the date. Here's the deal. Right now, under the authority of the Word of God, I am going to give you permission to lighten up a little bit. It's okay. It is okay, even though you're a Christian, if you have fun once in a while. It's okay if you laugh at funny humor. It's okay if you tell jokes. It's okay if you have parties. It's okay if you dance. It's okay. You guys, we need to let our hair down a little bit. If you're in a position to do that, <laughs> it's okay. And, and, and it, you know, it just blows my mind that as God's followers, we need to be told this. But I needed to be reminded of this in my study this week. You know, unbutton the top button. It's okay. You don't have to choke to death. Jesus didn't call us to a life you know, have you ever seen that movie, Monty Python's Holy Grail, The Search for the Holy Grail, and the monks are whacking themselves in the head, the board, every three steps? Man, some of us think that's what Christianity is supposed to be. That's not what God called us to. When I think of the term abundant life, I don't picture whacking myself in the head with a board. I picture laughter and joy and fellowship and fun. It's good to laugh a little, dance a little, have a little fun. That's what Jesus did. Now, he did it without ever compromising, so don't misunderstand what I'm saying. You know, we have to be honest enough to admit that when they drank wine in the Bible, it was actually alcohol. There are still some preachers out there who will tell you this cockamamie story about how it was unfermented grape juice. Well, let me tell you something. There was no refrigeration in those days. So if it was grape juice, it was fermented. So they drank alcohol. Now, am I encouraging you to drink alcohol? No. Follow your conviction on that. I'll tell you this. The Word of God says, don't get drunk. That's a sin. I'm not telling you, go out there and just blow a gasket and start partying like the world. That's not what I'm saying. The world has this whole motto, if it feels good, do it. That motto doesn't fit the followers of Christ because we don't need it because we have the joy of the Lord, and that is so much greater. So I'm not saying, hey, everybody, just drop all of the standards for your life and get out there and party. God's not saying that. But God is saying, 
we don't need to take um, false standards and put them in our own lives, and we certainly don't need to impose them on others. What we need to be doing is enjoying Jesus and bringing our friends and saying, come and see. If you're going to answer the call to come to Jesus, then you're going to answer the call to come with Jesus. And if you answer the call to come with Jesus, you're going to have to go to a few parties because that's where Jesus is. You and I should be known as being good and kind and righteous and upright. We should also be known as being fun and friendly. And we should never be known as being judgmental, unapproachable, uppity stuff shirts. That's not what God is. That's not what He calls us to be. And that's not what's going to attract people to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're going to walk with Jesus... He wants you to walk with Him and to bring your friends along in the process. And here's a tough question. Who do you know who needs to be brought to Jesus? Who do you know that needs to hear the words, come and see? And here's a tougher question. Does knowing you make them want to know Jesus more? That's going to take some soul searching. The people who don't know Jesus, but they know you, do they see you and want to know Jesus more? If not, that can change. But it has to change in you. See, if they're not attracted to Jesus, the problem is not with them. The problem's with us. We're the light of the world. Who do you know who needs to know Jesus? Jesus Christ today stands with arms outstretched, And he invites us to come to the party with him. When you answer that call, he changes everything, both for you and the people you meet. That's the life he's called us to.